Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This week on The California Report magazine. Everybody says education is key to your success, a ticket to your future. But what happens if you take a test as a kid and your school looks at the results and tells you you'll never amount to much? To top it off, you're put in classes that barely teach you any academics. Well, that's pretty much how special education used to work in California public schools. Your fate came down to your IQ score. And if you were African-American, you were more likely to score lower than other kids and wind up in dead-end classes. Why? Well, that question was at the heart of a game-changing trial that led to a statewide ban on IQ testing of black students back in 1979. Black educators and psychologists have said the IQ tests are discriminatory because blacks have been shut out from the mainstream of society and deprived of quality education. The judge concluded the tests were culturally biased, that they tested knowledge white kids were more likely to be taught at school or at home. They didn't test some innate capacity to learn. Well, that ban on IQ testing of black students for placement in special ed, it's still around. In fact, California is the only state that has a ban like it. It's named after that landmark case, Larry P. Larry P. The Larry P. Trump. Larry P. Larry P. Larry P. Larry P. I'm Sasha Coca, and this week, 40 years after that ruling, reporter Lee Romney tracks down the real Larry P. And it turns out the man behind the case has plenty to teach us about what is still broken for black students in special ed today. Lee Romney is a former LA Times reporter, and she's been digging deep into equity issues in education. So Lee, who is Larry P? Well, Larry P was a pseudonym used for the lead plaintiff in a lawsuit against the San Francisco Unified School District and the state. He was 12 years old when it was filed in 1971. My name is Daryl Lester. You sent a text message to my wife, Cecilia Lester. Okay, so Daryl Lester is his real name, and he called you and left you a voicemail? How did he find you, or how did you find him? I'd been talking to teenagers who felt really stigmatized by their early experiences in special ed, so I was curious about what the real Larry P. had gone through, and I started searching. I struck out a bunch until a psychologist who sat in on the trial told me that Larry P. actually went public with his real name when he testified. And I found an old newspaper clipping with a picture of him. There he was. He lives in Tacoma, Washington, and he's 60 years old now. I wrote him a letter. I messaged him and his wife on Facebook. So then he just calls you and says, yeah, I'm I'm Larry P.? Well, 
Not really, because no one had ever told him that he was given the name Larry P. for this case. So I had some explaining to do. But as we talked, he said he remembered just about everything about his school days and about testifying in that federal courtroom. He wanted to know more about the case. No one had ever fully explained it to him or told him how it turned out. Did they win the lawsuit? Yes, they won. He had no idea people all over the country still talk about the Larry P. case in the special ed world. That's because after he testified... I asked my mama, are we done? And she says, yes, son, we done. Okay, come on, let's go. And then you guys never really talked about it again? Nope. Mm Mm-mm. Wow. Never talked about it again. Daryl was born in Marietta, Georgia, but in 1965, he and his mom and older brothers moved to San Francisco to get away from the segregated South. Because she didn't want to find us uh, dead one day, hanging by a tree or whatever, you know, because it was still going on. Wow, that's a pretty big move to come from rural Georgia to San Francisco. What was that like for Daryl? It was wild. Man, it was so gorgeous there during the 60s. That was a gorgeous city. Their first house was an old Victorian in the Fillmore District. He took buses and rode his bike all over town. I loved going to the beach. Loved going to uh, Golden Gate Park. Everybody think the first Woodstock was up in New York. No, it wasn't. It was at the Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. They said, how do you know that? I said, me and my brother went to it. We were kids. On Saturday, January 14th, on the polo grounds in Golden Gate Park, a human be-in took place. It turns out Daryl and one of his older brothers waited right into the middle of the human be-in. That was in 1967, months before the Summer of Love. And I remember the police picking us up, putting us on the horse, and getting us out of the crowd. Because he was saying, what you two little black kids doing? We're here enjoying ourselves. That's what we're doing. Me and my brother. So life for Daryl was pretty good, except in school. It was just certain things I couldn't read when it came to reading and stuff. Other stuff I did fine. I was very good at math. So it turns out he did have a problem, but it was a really specific one, possibly dyslexia. Because they said that I was, when I, when I look at something and I'm trying to read it, And if I can't pronounce it, I'm looking at it backwards. He never got help with his reading, but Daryl told me he got teased, he got into fights with other kids, and he got suspended a lot. I would get frustrated, agitated, upset, and then I get sent to the principal's office, and I'm asking you, hey, can you help me? Because I don't understand this, or whatever. Or now you finna clown me. Okay, I'm gonna show you what a clown is. So, a little history. Back in 1968, a group of black psychologists broke off from the American Psychological Association in protest. And one of their main goals was to stop school districts from using IQ tests to place large numbers of black students into special ed. In California, Education Code actually required districts to use those test results. So when the psychologists started getting complaints from San Francisco parents, they teamed with civil rights lawyers, and in 1971, they sued the district and the state. Larry P. was one of six plaintiffs who represented black students across California in that class action lawsuit. And they were suing because they didn't believe their kids belonged in special ed, right? 
Correct. Districts were putting them in this squishy category they called, quote, educable mentally retarded. They were assuming these kids had a limited capacity to learn because they didn't score high enough on IQ tests. But the data alone showed that something was fishy because statewide, more than a fourth of the kids with that label were black, even though black students made up less than 10 percent of the student body. And basically, the case was alleging that that was because the IQ test was biased. Yeah, the Larry P. plaintiffs argued that the tests were designed for the dominant culture, which was Eurocentric, with questions like, who wrote Romeo and Juliet? The star witness in the case called these, quote, do you know what I know kinds of questions. And not just that, these kids were getting a subpar education in schools that were essentially still segregated. The judge agreed. His ruling in October 1979 made the local news. IQ test ruled unconstitutional and discriminatory today. Okay, so once these kids were put in this special ed category, what kind of education were they getting? The judge wrote that they were doomed to fall, quote, farther and farther behind because their classes didn't focus on academics. Instead, kids learned about things like personal hygiene and basic community living skills. Daryl remembers those classes. He says they were mostly black students, a ton of recess time, and lots of field trips, which you'd think most kids would be into. But Daryl knew something wasn't right. I walked to school and cried all the way. I just didn't like it, you know, because they wasn't teaching us nothing. He remembers being cross-examined by the attorney for the state, who was basically trying to prove that he was incapable of learning. Okay, you're a lawyer. You're educated. You went to college. You went the whole nine yards. Now you got this young black boy up here on, 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 on stage here. And you got a courtroom full of people, full of people. And now you're trying to make me look stupid. It sounds like the trial was really hard for Daryl. But in a way, he was making that sacrifice, right? Because he was supposed to spare the kids who came after him from having a similar experience at school. Is that how it turned out? The whole philosophy around special ed today is different. It takes a student's strengths into account instead of just focusing on what they can't do. And there are legal protections that didn't even exist in Daryl's day. But for reasons we're going to get into a little bit later, the Larry P. testing ban was not a magic remedy for black students. And today, special ed is still a huge gamble for black families. The stakes are really, really high. But some black parents want their kids plugged into special ed anyway because it gives them a legal avenue to hold schools accountable. Wait a minute. So even with those risks of getting mislabeled, you're saying that some black parents want their kids in special ed like it's a kind of protection? Yeah, and that may sound kind of crazy, but it's because even today, black and brown students across the country are way more likely than other kids to be suspended or expelled because of the way teachers and administrators perceive their behavior. Parents are desperate for some kind of leverage. I had a chance to meet some San Francisco Unified moms who were talking about all of this. The parents in this school auditorium have come together to share some pizza and talk about special education. Plenty of black families have to navigate that system because nearly one in three black students in this district is in special ed today, compared to one in eight non-black students. Being that we serve a lot of the same populations here. Under federal law, every special ed student gets an Individualized Education Program, or IEP. It spells out their struggles and the support they'll get at school, like extra time on tests, therapy, or one-on-one help. 
Nearly all the black parents in this room have pushed to get their children placed in special ed, but none are happy with the system. I'm trying to figure out, do I go ahead with this process of identifying my son, a black African-American boy, as special ed, knowing everything that comes along with that. What comes along with that is a long history of black students steered into categories and programs that don't fit or meet their needs. Boys are especially likely to be mislabeled, misunderstood, and punished for what adults at school view as aggression or defiance. But Maurisha Robinson says it's not just boys. Her daughter, Zariah, is in ninth grade now. It was just behavior. She's a cut up, she's a cut up, she's a cut up. Like, how do we, how do we curb the behavior, behavior? And it's all punitive. Maurisha co-chairs the school district's African-American Parent Advisory Council, and she's facilitating tonight. She says it took her two years to get her daughter assessed. The district knows black kids are overrepresented in special ed, and it's trying to get those numbers down. Maybe, Maurisha says, that's why no one moved to assess Zariah. But she thinks stereotypes played into it, too. Of her being a black, a, a black girl. She's aggressive. She's adultifying her, or she's sassy, or she's outspoken. Another mom says that as a low-income black parent, just trying to be heard around what she thinks her son needs is exhausting. I'm so tired of fighting against a system that is supposed to be erected to help my child. I'm sick of it. I don't think that we can um, move forward until we stop pretending. We've been band-aiding this for decades. Daryl Lester would agree that the system failed him decades ago, but we're just learning about what happened to him in life after that. You're listening to a special edition of the California Report magazine. This week, reporter Lee Romney is telling us about the history of black students in special education right here in California. Some of those injustices came to light in a federal court case in the 1970s. The case was called Larry P. after the lead plaintiff. That was a pseudonym. His real name was Daryl Lester. And nearly five decades after the case, Lee was the first reporter to track him down. Hi. Hi. I'm Lee. I'm Daryl. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. This is my wife, Cecile. Nice to meet you. You, too. You, too. Daryl and his wife, Cecile, live in a housing project in Tacoma, Washington, that was redeveloped into a neighborhood of two-story townhouses. The walls are covered in family photos. That picture there was 4th of July that we had a guy... Daryl's a nice dresser. When I meet him, he's wearing leather pants and a burgundy pullover sweater. He's got a big, open smile and a joyful laugh. These guys are huge Seattle Seahawks fans, and a big-screen TV dominates the small living room. We sit down on a plush sectional sofa to talk. Daryl's really curious about the Larry P. case. I pull a copy of the ruling out of my computer bag. It's nearly 90 pages long. Was my case? Yep. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, (laughs) this is your case. And I read to him about how the IQ test they used allegedly result in the misplacement of black children in special classes that doom them to stigma, inadequate education, and failure to develop the skills necessary to productive success in our society. Daryl's nodding. It resonates. But the details are all new to him because his family moved to Tacoma right after the lawsuit was filed. Down in San Francisco, nobody had taught him to read at anywhere near grade level. 
So his new high school in Tacoma? They said, well, okay, we're going to put you in special aid in the half a day program. Well, what's that? Well, you, you get up in the morning and you're going to go over to Safeway. Safeway, the grocery store? And they said, yeah. Daryl worked for free from 7.30 to 11 a.m. every day before attending a few classes in the back of the campus. After his family protested, the school put him in with all the other kids, and Daryl says he tried really hard. Summer school, night classes, working around the clock, you know, hardly getting any sleep, you know, because I'm trying to figure out, am I going to make it? But even though he walked in his graduation ceremony, he later found out he was two credits short of a high school diploma. It's like your whole life. It's like, what did I go to school for? I didn't learn anything. He never got his GED. Man, I didn't want nothing to do with school anymore after all that. After all what I've been through, I was so angry because I was basically embarrassed of myself because there was... Things I needed to learn that I didn't learn. He struggled. Addiction, low-wage jobs, and hard physical labor in the aluminum industry that left him on disability. I got slung into a wall and threw my back all out, out of whack and everything, and I couldn't give 100% anymore. But Daryl says what upsets him most is that he never mastered reading. When he got a worker's comp letter letting him know he'd been awarded benefits, he threw it away. Let's go back to my reading, mm-hmm. you know. His wife was there and wound up retrieving it from the trash. She said, Mom, 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 Daryl's throwing away money. <laughs> I didn't know. In the late 70s, Daryl was up in Washington State, and he was struggling in school, as we just heard. What was happening with black students back here in California after that IQ testing ban? Well, the judge makes districts reassess all those black students who'd been designated educable, mentally retarded, kids like Daryl, and they do it without the IQ tests. The numbers drop. Newer, more subtle special ed categories come in and replace the old ones. But black kids are still placed in special ed at rates way disproportionate to their population. And there are also kids who need special ed who fall through the cracks, even today. Maurisha, one of those San Francisco Unified moms we heard from earlier, she says that's what happened to her daughter, Zariah. She went through her whole like educational career up to seventh grade without having any support and any services and was like magical at it until she hit sixth grade and just went boom, 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 boom. But the fact that I, I went from six all the way to the end of seventh grade and no one, no one in the education world thought to even ask me to have her um, assessed. Zariah was getting kicked out of class, sent home or to the office. Her mom was worried the school would expel her. Every time something happened, it was put into the referral system. So then I was like, oh, they're building a case against my baby. In sixth grade, when school curriculum got more complex... is when all of those behaviors and challenges started, started to, to come out, but no one picked up on them. Zariah's 13 now, and she's not a big talker, but she tells me what it was like for her with one seventh grade teacher. Everything I do, she'll just like make it seem like it's always my fault. 
Like I need to get in trouble for it. She just call my mom or call the office. Like how often would it happen? Every day. Every day. So Marisha got some advice. If she requested that Zaria get assessed for special ed, she'd essentially be inoculated against expulsion. That was her main goal. And um, lo and behold, and I'll probably cry with it, she had a learning disability and I didn't know. And it, sorry, I get emotional about it because I feel bad as a mom that I had never picked it up. So she has a, a cognitive processing disorder that affects her short-term memory, memory and comprehension. For eighth grade, Marisha moved Zariah to a new school where she was placed in a regular class with some special assistants. They call that full inclusion, and when it works, it's great. The students in special ed aren't singled out or stigmatized. No one else in the class even knows which ones they are. When I meet Zariah in March, she's feeling pretty good about her grades. A, B, B, D. Yes, you had a very good first semester. And last year I had F, 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 F. Very true, Zariah. So that's a big improvement. Okay. Zariah's a high school freshman now, and mom says she's doing well. So her story is a great example of two things, how the system can work and how hard it still is for black parents to make sure that it does. So what is San Francisco Unified doing today to help fix these issues? Well, they've spent the past decade basically reworking their whole approach to support students early on so they don't land in special ed in the first place, to do deeper assessments, and to try to better tailor services to each special ed student instead of putting them in cookie-cutter programs. And in San Francisco, the black middle class has gotten squeezed out by skyrocketing housing costs. And this is a little ironic, but a higher proportion of those who stayed live in public housing and are dealing with poverty and other stressors like community violence. So while there are fewer black students at SF Unified than there used to be by a lot, more of them have really high needs. The district has to figure out how to meet those needs and who truly belongs in special ed. It's so tricky. Before we get back to Daryl Lester, I want to bring you up to speed on one thing. That IQ testing ban for black students for purposes of special ed placement, the heart of the Larry P case, there's been tension around that ban for decades. Because it didn't seem to solve all the problems with special ed for black students, the California Association of School Psychologists wants it lifted. But because all these other biases still exist in the educational system, plenty of advocates for black students want the ban to remain in place. John Affelt, managing attorney at Public Advocates. It's my job to oversee and enforce the Larry P. injunction. Public Advocates is one of the civil rights firms that filed that Larry P. case all those years ago. And Affelt acknowledges IQ tests have improved since then, for sure. But he says not by enough. And he thinks that's because the tests still measure acquired knowledge, not intellectual potential. I'm happy that the ban throws a wrench in the works and makes the school psychologists find other ways to assess whether or not a child has a true disability or is in need of some other type of support. Plenty of school psychologists do make good assessments, but the consequences of getting this wrong are so huge, Affelt says, why risk it? Why would you do that? Why do we need to inject the dynamite of a potential 
intelligence label on these kids' lives and futures. That's what happened to Daryl Lester, Larry P., the man. Daryl's been clean and sober for 18 years now, he tells me. I'm not bashful like I used to be, to where I kept everything hidden, didn't want you to know, you know, tried to make like I'm this person, knowing good and well I'm not that person, you know. I'm broke, I'm poor, but I'm making it. All that he lost by not getting an education, though, it still causes him pain. His wife, Cecile, has seen it. Sometimes I'd be down here by myself, and she'd come downstairs, what's wrong with you? What you crying for? And they say grown men don't cry. That's a lie. Men cry, especially if they ain't got what they want. It hurts on the inside, but you have to swallow your pride and look over it and just find some strength somewhere and say, hey, come on, you could do this, I'm better than this, and that gets me through the day. One thing about Mr. Lester is that he did not know that he was a celebrity. Daryl is back in San Francisco for the first time since he testified in that federal courtroom more than 40 years ago. He's the guest of honor on a panel of current black parents who've struggled to navigate the special ed system. And that's kind of important because what he does for us this evening is put a face on Larry P. He has a story that we can all relate to if, in fact, we understand what education should have provided for our children and what it did not. So I'm going to. And Daryl wants to share that story. um, About 200 people show up, it's an emotional homecoming. Can you hear me now? Is this thing on? Okay. The seats are filled mostly with parents, educators, and disability rights advocates. Some of them teamed up to fly Daryl and Cecile down here. But there are a few students in the room, and Daryl says he has a message for them, that they should fight for an education and not feel ashamed, even if they're struggling with their reading. And we know from district test scores that plenty of black students are. If a teacher is not helping you, that is not good. And then you got other, you got other kids that will make fun of you. And if you're a kid that can't read something, that uh, it's embarrassing. Very embarrassing. But... Uh, kind of getting emotional a little bit. But I'm, I'm good. Just bear with me. <laughs> I'm good. Just bear with me. The next day, I drive Daryl and Cecile around in the rain to find his old haunts, including the family's first San Francisco home, a gorgeous Victorian in the Fillmore yeah. District. This is it. Okay. This is where we live. This one here. This one? Daryl gets out of the car to take some photos and comes back breathless. God, you gotta look at this. This is where we used to live. Remember the long stairs I was telling you about? Watch this. There's a door. When you get up to the top, Mama would be in the kitchen baking pies and cakes, and you can't. Those are some stairs. You couldn't slam the door or run down the stairs because it make a loud rumble. (laughs) <laughs> and it'll make the cake fall. <laughs> Daryl's spirit cake, is flying. That hero's welcome back to the city that caused him pain, it's been healing. 
I keep thinking about how different things could have been for him if educators had helped him with his reading, if they'd understood the source of his anger instead of punishing him for it. He still has so much to teach us, and he's eager to do it. That's the California Report magazine. Thanks to Lee Romney for bringing us that story. She reported it with support from the Fund for Journalism on Child Well-Being, a program of the University of Southern California Center for Health Journalism. A couple of updates, Decoding Dyslexia California and the Northern California branch of the International Dyslexia Association are fundraising to create a Larry P. Scholarship for African-American students struggling to read. Decoding Dyslexia California has also found a tutor in Tacoma to teach Daryl to read. This story was edited by Victoria Maleone. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. Our director is Susie Racho. Our editorial team also includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from California Earthquake Authority, a not-for-profit offering earthquake insurance to help Californians protect their financial futures. For more information, go to earthquakeauthority.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.